So we've been making comments for five years now. That's over 100 episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the Commons team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canadaland supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. This is our second week of running interviews with all the contenders to lead the Conservative Party. The House of Commons sat yesterday, and we'll be getting into that for the next couple of weeks for sure. But for now, we just wanted to talk about this interesting race that's happening. Once again, this isn't just someone who will run for prime minister in a few years. They'll also be the head of the opposition for the next three years. So it's actually somebody who's got quite an important role to play in the government. Absolutely. Holding the current government to account and making sure that, you know, stuff gets done, essentially, and that they're representing their own constituents and representing the conservative voice within Canada. Yeah, and we're seeing all the candidates sort of carve out their own space in this race. You know, Michael Chong is taking a strong environmental stance, which we haven't really seen from conservatives in the past couple of years. Kelly Leach, obviously, being the Canadian values candidate. Tony Clement increasingly is carving out a space as the war on terror guy. Yeah, and Maxime Bernier is holding down that small L libertarian angle. So we've got quite a range of people who are running to be leader. Brad Trost, of course, is holding down that SOCON vote. SOCON being social conservative, right? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. I speak in normal people speak, Sapria. I, I know. My apologies. So this week we have Tony Clement and Maxime Bernier. I'm Sapria Devetti. I'm Vicky Mochama. And from Canada Land, this is Commons. So Vicky, I used to be quite the light sleeper, but now that I have a Casper mattress, I got to say it's kind of life changing. So Casper is a sleep brand that created one perfect mattress that they sold directly to customers. And it comes in this really cool teeny tiny box that you can't believe that there's a mattress inside. I know. You're like, how did they actually fit that in that box? Exactly. Casper is revolutionizing the mattress industry by cutting the cost of dealing with resellers and showrooms and passing that savings directly to the customer. An in-house team of engineers spent thousands of hours developing the Casper. It combines springy latex and supportive memory foams for a sleep surface that's got just the right sink and just the right bounce. Plus, its breathable design sleeps cool to help you regulate your temperature throughout the night. Time Magazine even named it one of the best inventions of 2015. Now, mattresses can cost well over $1,500, but Casper mattresses cost $725 for a twin-sized mattress, $1,175 for a queen, and $1,275 for a king. And buying a Casper mattress is completely risk-free. Casper offers free delivery and free returns with a 100-night home trial. If you don't love it, they'll pick it up and refund you everything. Casper understands the importance of truly sleeping on a mattress before you commit, especially considering you're going to spend a third of your life on it. The Casper is an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. Get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting www.casper.com commons and using the code commons. Terms and conditions apply.
All right, Vicky, so you spoke to Tony Clement. He's the MP for Perry Sound, Muskoka. Yeah, he's a very interesting man and a big Taylor Swift fan. <laughs> well, other than his love for music and Taylor Swift, uh, last week he actually said that terror suspects should be detained if they can't be monitored 24-7. Just to be clear, this means locking up people who are considered a threat but have no actual charges against them. Um, he also wants to create a most wanted list. He wants enhanced screening for people coming in and out of the country. And he wants to monitor all charities to make sure they're not contributing to radicalization or terrorism. Yeah. So I talked to him on August 12th before he had said all this stuff. So we did a follow up interview that we'll play later. But first, let's get into the conversation. We have a big question for you. What would your dating profile sound like? Musically inclined, fun-loving guy, likes walks on the beach. I, everybody says that, right? Yeah, who doesn't like a walk on the beach? Exactly. I mean, <laughs> who are these people who hate walks on the beach? Why are they on the dating profile in the first place? Well, some people don't like sand between their toes, I guess. Yeah, I guess that's pretty lame. Anyway, <laughs> uh, so uh, fun-loving, good sense of humor, and uh, interested in the future of our country. How did you get started in being interested in the future of our country? Uh, it started, I guess, when I was in high school, and um, my mother was working at uh, Queen's Park. She was a single mom at this time and raising me. She had a job at Queen's Park working for a conservative MPP, and so I got interested in politics that way. And at the time as well, it was a time, mid-70s I'm talking, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, Trudeau Part 1, was in power and uh, lurching the country leftward with taxing and spending policies that weren't working very well. Uh, inflation was high and uh, people didn't have work. And uh, I just felt really drawn to political movements and parties that actually wanted people to have more choices in their lives and have more freedom in their lives and uh, economic freedom and uh, and social freedom. So that's how I became a conservative. Now, when you ran for leader of the Ontario Progressives in 2002, you sold yourself as the choice of the next generation. Yeah, It's been a few years now. Do you think the federal conservative party needs to go in a similar direction? Absolutely not. <laughs> uh, no, uh, look, um, I was uh, 40 years old then, and uh, since that time, I've had 15 solid years of political involvement at the highest levels of Ontario, you know, Ontario politics, but also federal politics. But I think that whoever is our leader does have to communicate better with a bunch of different groups, millennials being one, uh, one of those groups, urban dwellers. Mm-hmm. I would also add new Canadians to that list, too, where we had some success in the past, but we kind of lost the mojo on that in the last election. So, yeah, I, I think part of what we have to do, and I don't think this is a function of chronological years, it's a function of attitude. We do have to communicate better with people. And one of the things I've been saying is with millennials and the way they acquire news and views, we just haven't kept pace with that. And mm -hmm. we're, we're poor in social media. We're poor in more traditional communication communications, our message, which should, I believe, sell well to millennials, has not been communicated properly. So these are things that I would like to fix. On social media, I put out a call. I was like, I'm interviewing Tony Clement tomorrow. Does anybody have any questions? And almost all of the questions were about your social media use. So I'm going to go yeah. through some. One is a question I have. There's a Snapchat out there of you and Rona Ambrose playing beer pong. Who's better, you or Rona? Uh, let's call it a draw. But uh, the game got a little bit rowdier as the beverages were consumed. Let's put it that way. 
but it was it was kind of fun. That was actually yeah. in the official opposition leader's uh, house in Ottawa. Oh, that's good. Time. And so we had we had a bunch of the interns over, like uh, these these students who are were starting their summer internship. They had karaoke in one room and beer pong in the other. So <laughs> I wisely stuck with beer pong. I like that you turned the official opposition leader's house into like a dorm room. Yeah, basically, <laughs> yeah, it was it was something I hadn't seen before. Supriya, who couldn't be here today, had a question. She wanted to know if at Tony Clement CPC is an Instagram bot because you like everything. No, that's me. I know it's crazy. <laughs> oh dear, I, I'm liking too many photos. But I thought that was the whole point. No, I think it is. But it's like it's one of those things where uh, I have friends who will be like, "Do you know this Tony Clement guy? Like he likes my photos of like of my vacation." I was like, "Yeah, he's a politician in, in our country." Yeah, that's me liking photos. It's funny you can find a minute here and a minute there, and you just uh, spend it liking photos. But I, I've, I just feel like that's what we should be doing is be encouraging of one another and encouraging of our messages and it creates a community so i don't just want to be the recipient of likes on instagram i want to give the likes on instagram too it's very generous can you tell us what's your vision for the conservative party well i think that it's critical that we have someone at the helm uh, who has experience in government i obviously uh, spent uh, close to 10 years in the federal cabinet, including running the budgets of the departments, being a former small business owner. I know about small business and the red tape that small businesses face and some of the other hurdles that are put in place. I was born elsewhere. I'm an immigrant to this country. And and I think that experience is important in today's Canada as well. So uh, when I look at my history and uh, the things that I've done, both in government and outside of government, I believe that I've got a good package for people to take a look at considering the alternatives to Justin Trudeau. And I I believe three years from now, people will be seriously looking at an alternative. I believe that the tax and spend policies of the Trudeau government are not creating jobs. We've lost 100,000 full-time jobs in this country in the last two months alone. And uh, I believe that- But I mean, uh, full-time jobs are not currently for millennials anyways. Well, but you know, weren't getting full-time jobs in the first place. But I think we've got to we've got to acknowledge that our economy has to keep up and it has to create new opportunities for people of all ages, but especially millennials who want to be in the workforce in some capacity. And uh, the fact of the matter is that the tax and spend policies are not going to do that. So I guess I want to be a voice, the contrary voice, saying this isn't working. And uh, here's a better alternative. How can we create a low tax jurisdiction Mm -hmm. that generates jobs for all sectors of our society and our economy, all regions of our country as well? That's, I think, going to be a very important point in the next election. How do you do that, though? Yeah, well, in the next few weeks and months, I'm going to be laying out a platform of uh, how we can kickstart our economy, make it more competitive, make it more innovative. I've already talked about a one-page tax form for our small businesses and because it's so complex now that it hurts our small business and our ability to compete. How is that one-page tax form helpful to, say, millennials? It's going to help our small businesses hire more people because they're not going to be spending you know, half of their working hours filling out forms for government. Let's uh, free our small business. Let's free our startup people, many of whom are millennials, to actually generate the jobs, generate the economic activity, pursue their dreams. Why wasn't this an idea that. that came up in the you know decade that your sure. government had in power? Well, I part of what I did at Treasury was I was uh, head of the uh, targeting of red tape, and we did reduce red tape. We saved literally hundreds of thousands of hours of time and millions of dollars for our small businesses. But that work continues, and the biggest nut to crack is with our tax system. Now, as a 
prominent member of the Harper government. You held a number of different cabinet mm-hmm. positions. If people are looking for a new face for conservatism, why would it be you still? Part of it is experience, though. You want someone who knows how government works as well as the private sector, uh, someone who has experienced some of the things that Canadians have experienced as, a, as an immigrant to this country. I've done that as, as well as being a small business owner. But you need to know how the levers of government work. And so I'm not saying it has to be a totally new face. I'm not a totally new face. I'm a known and trusted face. Can I ask why do you think the term Harper government has become so loaded? Part of it is self-inflicted and part of it is uh, the nature of media today. And um, there's no question that uh, Mr. Harper had his uh, supporters, but he also had his detractors. That part of our history is over. Mr. Harper is no longer prime minister. He's going to be moving on with his life. I, for one, think that we accomplished some good things when it came to the big issues of an economy and security. But clearly, people were looking for something different and uh, were looking for a change. Now the issue is, has that change been working out? Can you tell us a little bit about the immigrant experience that you're describing? Yeah, so born in the UK, Manchester, England. My father is Greek Cypriot, born in Cyprus, and then emigrated to Manchester, met my mother. My mother's family is from the Middle East. And so, yeah, my experience has been that uh, we emigrated when I was four years old to this country, moved to Hamilton. My father was a, a carpenter and then a restaurant owner. My first job was at his restaurant in Hamilton, the Cavalier Steakhouse and Tavern. And were you a server? I was a busboy. I wasn't even a server. <laughs> my hours my hours were 10 a.m. to 2 a.m. There's uh, no benefit but, to being the boss's kid then. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I earned 39 bucks a week, but I, I did get to keep some tips. Nice. So, you know, uh, it was, but that I think that's important as part of my character, who I am. I am not afraid of hard work. And uh, I think that's very similar to a lot of people's experiences, quite frankly. Growing up, did you feel like you were growing up as, it's a, it's a difficult one that I try to figure out the right way to say it. Yeah. Did you feel like you were growing up as an immigrant a little bit outside of Canadianness and then finding your way in? Or did you feel immediately like we're Canadian? No, I think I was finding my way in. There's no question. And, you know, people, you know, when you're in the schoolyard or whatever, they, they didn't know where you were from, but they just knew you were different, right? Mm-hmm. And so I definitely experienced that. So yeah, I, I, I wanted to be Canadian, I, I, but that experience is the experience a lot of people have. We define Canadian different ways in different generations too. It's, it's not a static term. And it's always redefined as new ways of immigration come. And that's the beauty of our country that we, we accept these ways of immigration and, and it, and it creates a political and social dialogue that changes as it should change and and it becomes more modern for the next generation and i think we do embrace that as a country there are still some firm values that we should always treasure you know we are a democratic country we are tolerant of one another's points of view uh, we believe that uh, women should be fully integrated, obviously, in our society and should lead our society. And uh, that uh, regardless of where you're from, uh, you can aspire to the top roles in our society. We, we agree with that. Would it then be contradictory for the Conservative Party to put in place a middle class, older white guy to say, well, we're going to articulate that we believe women should lead? Again, you know, I think it's it's what your experiences are. I've had those experiences as a newcomer to this country. And uh, I can articulate that vision for everybody. Uh, I think that's what you're saying. I don't think that is the preserve of one particular gender or one particular skin color. I think that's just the debate we've got to have. In having that debate, then, isn't there the possibility that immigrants of color face a different set of circumstances and different reality to immigrants who are folded into whiteness? Well, I think that that is a very good point and that that's why what we've got to do is create a space 
in our society where everyone gets to articulate their particular point of view. I'm not pretending that I know the whole immigrant experience. I know my immigrant experience, and that gives me a sensitivity to other people's experience as well in this country. But I'm not here to say it's my experience and no one else's experience is valid. That would be wrong. Mm-hmm. How do you plan to approach reconciliation with our country's indigenous peoples? Well, again, I think that we've got to have a, a, a message as conservatives that is particular to us, that is different from the liberal message. The liberal message so far is big on talk and uh, writing checks. What I've seen in my travels and my experience has been hugely successful indigenous small businesses on reserve and, and near reserve where we have some amazing entrepreneurs. And so we've got to do more of that. I think that that's uh, part of uh, what the conservative message can be, but we've got to have a policy that matches that. And so in the in the weeks and months ahead, I'll be articulating that as well. What's the problem with writing checks? It's just a question of whether it's successful or not. If writing checks were the definition of success, we would have had success by now because uh, the subsidies for uh, activity on reserve, whether it's housing or social services or education, costs about $11 billion per year for 1 million of our citizens on reserve, and it has not engendered success. Uh, The health outcomes are poor, the education outcomes are poor, the housing outcomes are poor. So if writing checks were the solution, we would have been there by now. But at least on education, Indigenous education is vastly underfunded compared to the larger population. So that's not necessarily true that writing checks would have gotten us there. It's simply that the checks haven't been big enough to account for decades and centuries worth of oppression, right? Well, I think we had checks. We also had a central management scheme that was operated out of Ottawa for those things. And that clearly is not working. You've got to devolve more power to where the educators are. But you've also got to make sure that we have ways to measure success so that uh, the money is put to good use. So that's all I'm saying is we got to look for better ways to deliver mm-hmm. that. Writing checks and then dictating from Ottawa how it's done hasn't worked is, yeah. is what I'm saying. Um, another issue that came up, at least in the, at your convention, was about the environment. Mm-hmm. You've said that you're opposed to a carbon tax, right. which is a climate change solution that other conservatives have embraced. Do you think we actually even need laws to address climate change? Well, I think that we've got to have targets. We have target that our country has signed onto in the Paris Accord, which is uh, designed to reduce emissions to the extent uh, possible to reduce the upward uh, shift and cap it between one and a half and two degrees above average. Now the issue is how do you get there? Mm-hmm. And I guess my point and others is that a centrally designed price on carbon designed by the liberal government ultimately will end in failure. It's not reflecting marketplace solutions or marketplace behavior. It will punish the wrong people because it'll be passed along to the consumers. And who will be hit by a carbon tax the worst? Seniors, people on fixed incomes, people on lower incomes, and we'll have, in effect, two consumption taxes in this country. We'll have the GST or HST, and we'll have another carbon tax. And our country's a rich country, but it can't afford two consumption taxes. So to me, that's the wrong approach. And what I will be doing over the weeks and months ahead is suggesting an alternative approach. What's that that approach? That will unleash the innovation and the creativity of the private sector for green solutions uh, for our economy and for the production of energy. I think that's going to be important. The federal liberals reinstated the census and you said that you wished that uh, you yourself hadn't canceled it. So it didn't cancel it. It was moved from being mandatory and you're threatened with jail time 
to a voluntary long-form census. I still believe that threatening citizens with jail time for refusing to fill out a government form is the wrong approach. Mm-hmm. I want to make that very clear. But why uh, not modify that? That's what we try to do. We try to remove the threat of jail time, and that's what makes it uh, uh, voluntary rather than mandatory. I don't think anyone has, I've, I feel like I've had the knock on my door for the census and no one has ever threatened you with jail time. That's not, I don't know that that's a real thing that happens. That's what I'm, that's what I'm informed of. People have inform, informed me of that. They don't start with that approach. That's usually the third or fourth attempt at it. And, and uh, if you look at the advertising for the last census, it's the law, making the point that you're breaking the law if you don't fill out the form. And then all you do is a little bit of research and you can find out it's fines or jail time. So all I'm saying is, look, in the 21st century, is there a better way to capture data, meaningful data, accurate data that doesn't involve threatening your citizens? I'm hoping there is. In today's world, a lot of that data is captured anyway. And as long as it's handled, uh, you know, with privacy controls in place, a lot of that data is already out there. So why are we tracking down citizens to get the information that is probably in some government data bank somewhere in the system? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's like an expensive redundancy, in my opinion. Isn't there the argument that a lot of these technological ways of capturing data exclude people who don't have access to technology? Well, then, like if you yeah. only ever fill out government forms by hand, a lot of your information is either delayed or doesn't exist in the system well, that, accurately. That's a great debate to have. Let's have that debate yeah. rather than saying we've done it this way for 150 years and this is the way we're always going to do it in the future, which is where, where the debate is now. But why and, wasn't that the debate you brought up instead of saying... See, that, that was my regret. It would have been better to have a more expansive discussion about these issues. At the time, it was 2010, and the census was about to be published. So decisions were too rushed, I would have to say. All right, so we have a couple of rapid-fire questions to wrap up I love (laughs) rapid-fire. What's your song of the summer? Yeah, uh, I would say uh, Churches and Haley Williams' Bury It. What's your guilty pleasure? My guilty pleasure probably in music is uh, listening to Churches and Haley Williams. (laughs) Nice. What's your favorite cocktail? I'm a non-drinker, so it would. Uh, I'm afraid it's going to be Perrier or just club soda. I love Perrier. Pick a side, Taylor Swift or Kim Kardashian? Oh, no question, Taylor Swift. Oh, my God, no. <laughs> <laughs> Legalize pot or not? Decriminalize. How do you manage a work-life balance? Sometimes well, sometimes poorly, but I've got a very dedicated uh, spouse who, uh, who puts up with a lot. What's your hair care regimen? I use those uh, little shampoos you get from hotels. (laughs) How many do you have? (laughs) A lot. (laughs) (laughs) All right. That's fantastic. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Thank you. So that was my interview with Tony Clement on a whole bunch of subjects. Right. But we're going to need to call him back to talk about this whole, you know, detaining terror suspects and auditing charities for terrorist activities. So uh, let's get into that. So, Tony, under your proposed new system, suspected terrorists, those who've been unconvicted, would be detained. What kind of evidence would you need to jail them? Well, you'd need a a high degree of evidence. It has to be a judicial process uh, overseen by a judge. Uh, It can't just be the say-so of security personnel, but the uh, security personnel would have gathered evidence. I, I think the common sense thing that I'm trying to say here is, look, if you've got enough evidence that somebody is likely to commit a terrorist act, that a judge has said that a peace bond is necessary. If you've got that much evidence on somebody, 
then if you can't surveil that person 24-7, there is a need to protect society because they're likely to commit a terrorist act as judged by a judge, and uh, they do have to be detained. I think all people can reasonably agree that there are potentially dangerous people out there. Um, But how would you ensure regular Canadians that their civil liberties will be respected and protected um, if you're suggesting to jail people who aren't necessarily convicted of anything? Absolutely. Well, it's the same process that we use judges to issue search warrants. It's the same process that we use judges to issue peace bonds. So it's a question of degree. I think most people would agree that we should protect people from someone who is likely to commit a terrorist act. And that's what I was saying when I issued my 10-point plan to uh, ensure that uh, we have the tools available to us in this society to prevent terrorist acts. This plan is based on best practices around the world. It's based on two Senate committee reports, anti-terror experts, uh, lawyers, uh, other advocates who were called before these committees, the best evidence and the best conclusions by the Senate committee. And that's what I was uh, echoing. So how do you make sure then that this doesn't become a slippery slope for detaining people we consider enemies of the state? To me, this is sounding a little bit like Minority Report, where, you know, people are convicted of pre-crimes before they've done anything. That analogy has been used by left-wing intellectuals in response to my presentation, but my presentation is based on best practices. So this is not based on trying to read somebody's mind and saying, oh, I can read that person's mind. They're about to commit a terrorist act. No, this is going to be based on hard evidence, based on the best evidence before a judge that the person is about to commit a terrorist act. And we, ha- we had the situation in Ontario just a few months ago with Aaron Driver, who was busy plotting a major terrorist act that would have committed violence in our society. He was on a peace bond. The security personnel didn't have the resources to surveil him 24-7. And it was only because of a tip from the FBI, thank goodness, that he was apprehended before he committed a terrorist act. I make no apologies to your listeners to say he should have been either surveilled 24-7 or he should be detained so he could not commit the act that he was about to commit. I think that that's common sense. Part of your plan is also to include monitoring charities for terrorist activities. What reason do you have to believe that charities are promoting terrorism? Well, there's been eight uh, convictions so far of Canadian charities that were funneling money to terrorist organizations. So uh, I've got evidence on my side. I'm also using best practices. This is based on a, a recommendation of a Senate committee report that is based on the best practice in the world, which is the UK. The UK has set up a UK Charities Commission that monitors charities for potential terrorist funding and activity. And uh, I would propose the same for Canada. All right. Thank you for your time, Tony. Thanks, guys. We're not caught up in your love affairs and we'll never be royals. It don't run in our blood. Kind of luck's the same for us. We crave a different kind of bud. Let me be your ruler. You can call me Queen Bee. And I'll rule, I'll rule, I'll rule, I'll rule. Let me live that fantasy. That's Tony Clement, and now we're going to hear from Maxime Bernier, who I spoke to back in July. Bernier is the MP for Beauce-Quebec, but Vicky, you want to give us a breakdown of his trading card? Yeah, he is often called the libertarian candidate. Some of his policy proposals include privatizing Canada Post, deregulating the telecom sector, and ending protections of Canadian jobs in a whole bunch of industries. He also calls himself a supporter of personal freedoms, which we'll get into. 
I'm actually really curious to hear his stance on uh, cannabis legalization because Mark Emery actually recently came out who is referred to as the Prince of Pot as supporting Maxime Bernier. So I'm all about those pot policy proposals. So Maxime, I want to listen very quickly to your campaign song from last year. <laughs> Please explain that for us. That was an idea that we had to do something different, something special for the last election. And uh, my team and I, we had the idea to do a jingle like in the uh, 1980s. And so we did it and we were very happy with the result. Uh, people in both, uh, they liked it and uh, outside both, uh, they like it or not. But the most important is uh, that was playing in the radio in both during the campaign. And maybe that was the secret of my big success in both and for the last election. <laughs> so I want to talk to you about your vision for the Conservative Party. You're often called a libertarian candidate. Would you call yourself that? Well, I'm calling myself a conservative who believes in freedom. And I think it is what it is. When you are a conservative, you believe in individual freedom and personal responsibility. You believe in a smaller government and a smaller government to give more freedom to people by lowering taxes. And so I think that's a core conservative value, freedom. And yes, in my campaign, I'm very proud to have four very important principle or themes for my campaign. It is the first one, individual freedom and personal responsibility. Oh, can I ask you about that quickly? I wanted to talk about where you stand on some issues of personal freedom. Do you mind if I run some by you if you can just say yes or no? Oh yeah, for sure. Okay, would you legalize marijuana? Yeah, in principle, yes. But for me as a politician, I will wait uh, the legislation from the Liberal government if I will vote for or against. But on principle, yes. Do you support gay marriage? Yes, I did. Uh, actually, I speak for that at the last convention in uh, in Vancouver. Do you support polygamy? Uh, you know, uh, I think we have legislation in Canada that are in line with population. So Marin said would be no. Do you believe in the freedom to practice religion, even if that means wearing a niqab? This subject about niqab was a big discussion at the last uh, campaign, electoral campaign. And for me, people, they have right to wear what they want to wear. Okay, so that's a yes. What about guns? Should people be allowed to carry automatic weapons in public? No, we're not like in the U.S. And we have strict legislation on that. And uh, I, I don't want to change that legislation in Canada. That's our quick fire round on those issues of personal freedom. I also wanted to ask you about Bill C-51, which you voted for, and it gives huge new powers to spy agency. How do you reconcile that with your views of a small, unintrusive government? It was important to have the right legislation for being sure that the uh, law enforcement authorities, they have the power to do what they want to do for being a safe country. When you speak for freedom and individual rights, uh, you cannot have that if you're not living in a, in, a, in a safe and a free country. So it's all together. 
if there are some abuse by the uh, authority, people will be able to react because, as you know, each time that uh, the police wants to do an investigation or something like that, they will have to need the authorization of a judge. And I think that's the way to protect the privacy. That judge will have the authority to say no or yes. And that's why I voted for that. I'm curious about that because we've seen in the States that those judges often just sign off on more or less anything that the Secret Service has asked them for. What would be different about Canada's system? You cannot compare us with what's happening in the U.S. We didn't have any excess of that in Canada. I believe in the judiciary system that they can do what they have to do. So I'm not uh, afraid of, uh, of anything that won't be in line with our constitution. So let's talk about your campaign for the leadership. What do you plan to do to bring votes of young people to the party? It is important to speak to them and to connect with them. And the way to do that is by, uh, I think, social media. I'm using a lot of social media to be in touch with the uh, young population. But uh, that's the means to communicate with them. But also we need to have the right message. And my message is very clear. More freedom, less government. And I think uh, the millennium, they like uh, that message. So speaking of youth, what are your specific policies to address youth issues? What about rising student debt? What about the issues of the job market? What are your policies here? We want to be sure that, first of all, they would be able to have a job, the job that they want, uh, and, and will have prosperity in this country. So speaking about a balanced budget, I think it is important for the next generation because what's happening right now in Ottawa, as you know, we have huge deficit. The future generation will have to pay for that, but it is not responsible to do that uh, in Canada because they won't uh, benefit from that because two-thirds of the deficit is going to uh, social services. It is not going to build a road or bridge or highway. It's going to uh, go to have more social program. So the future generation will have to pay for the program that we're having right now. I'm speaking to them and telling them that uh, I will have responsible policies that will bring more prosperity. Uh, I'm speaking about uh, more freedom also in the uh, agriculture sector, as you know, we're not able right now to buy cheese or products from outside the country because of the tariff and all that. So I want to get rid of the supply management system where there's no uh, free market in the milk, dairy, and poultry, and uh, also eggs uh, uh, products in Canada. So that has an impact on the low-income family. They are paying uh, twice the price for these products, so I want to get rid of that. I think that will have an impact for uh, young families also. So you're saying that you would cut a bunch of social programs and export jobs? No, what I'm saying is during this campaign, I will uh, present proposal that at the end will resolve to a smaller government at the federal level. So like one of them is to uh, privatize a Canada Post. And also I said we must abolish the CRTC in the telecom sector. And, and like that, we will be able to lower taxes to all Canadians. When you spoke to the National Observer, you said that you would be consulting with scientists about your environmental platform. Here's the quote. I know that there are scientists who think that the climate is changing and it is because of humans. We'll have to look at it and take a position at the right time. Have you looked at it since the convention? 
No, so what I'll do, it would be more this fire, uh, fall that I will have a, a detailed policy on that. But what I can tell you right now, I don't want to impose a new tax. I think that in four years from now, our provinces will have a kind of a price of carbon. It won't be time to uh, impose a second one at the federal level. I think for the environment, I won't have the same position of uh, my opponent, Michael Chung, who wants to impose a carbon tax at the federal level. For me, uh, this uh, it is not a question, uh, but I will have a concrete proposal on the environment next fall. Another principle that I want to talk about with the Conservative Party is about reconciliation with Indigenous people. What approach do you want to take? I'm working on a speech that will be based on uh, the most important part of the speech will be to have property rights on the reserve, I think it will be important, but also other uh, proposals that I will come forward. But for me, it will be important to have a new kind of relationship with First Nation based on uh, property rights on reserve. What's your relationship been like with Indigenous people or Indigenous populations? Oh, it's a good one. Uh, when I'm traveling, uh, I try to have meeting with them. I, I spoke with some chief to uh, work on my policy. Maybe that policy won't be approved by all the chiefs in Canada, but it will be a policy for the future that I think that Canadians and First Nations uh, will, will, will like at the end. So we have a couple of final rapid-fire questions for you. What is your top song of the summer? My first one will be uh, my jingle, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but that being said, it's catchy. Uh, I didn't have time to listen to the new song of the summer and things like that. When I'm listening, when I have time a little bit, I like the jazz, I like the country. Uh, right now, I was in Calgary, and I listen a lot of uh, Blue Radio. Uh, I had a chance to see them, and uh, and I, I knew them. So what I was listening recently, it's the last album of Blue Radio, but I don't listen to radio often. When I'm uh, traveling, usually I have audio books. What audio book are you listening to? The last one I was listening, it's a, a book uh, on the economy by Peter Schiff, uh, and that was a good one. So I try to listen audio book when I'm traveling, and so I, I don't listen to radio often. What's your favorite guilty pleasure? Guilty pleasure. You know, I like chocolate. So sometimes, you know, I try to eat very well. I try to eat uh, uh, having a smoothies and green juice in the morning and eating a lot of fruit and vegetable. But uh, sometime I will uh, buy some uh, nice uh, milk chocolate bar, and I know it's not so good for your health, but uh, I like it. Do you have a favorite cocktail? What I'm drinking, usually I will have wine, but sometime I will have, I like uh, vodka uh, cranberries, but I'm training for a marathon right now, so uh, I don't drink when I'm training for a marathon. And as you know, I, I, I was a year and a half without drinking uh, uh, when I was training for my 100K uh, that I did in uh, 13 hours uh, to cross my riding for raising money for a food bank. Now I'm training for the marathon and it is the Montreal one that I want to do next fall. So uh, usually I don't drink. I'm having uh, water with my, uh, with my meals. So I want to ask you one last question. You have 
two daughters. How do you plan to balance your home life with leadership if you win? Well, I'm doing that right now. Uh, you know, as a member of parliament and as a minister before, you have to uh, manage your private life. What I always do is uh, I put my time with my daughters in my agenda. So that's uh, a priority. So uh, I have uh, three kind of priorities right now. The first one would be my time with my daughters. The second one will be my time in both as a member of parliament from both. And the third one will be my time to travel across the country and work for being elected as the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. So the way to do that is to reserve time in your agenda. Actually, this weekend, uh, that will be my dad weekend, and I'll be with uh, Charlotte and Megan. So that sounds like a busy schedule. How do you how do you manage to train for this marathon? Well, usually I'm doing that in the morning. Sometimes during the weekend I will train at the end of the day, but uh, I like to wake up very early, so five thirty, six o'clock, and I'm doing my run early in the morning. And after that, I'm ready to go to the office. You just have to be disciplined. Between 9.30 and 10.30, I'll be in bed and just to uh, be ready for the next run the day after and doing what I have to do. But being in shape, it gives me more energy and it's very useful for this campaign for the leadership. Well, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate you taking the time. I appreciate that. Have a nice day. That was my conversation with Maxime Bernier. We checked in to see whether he'd made any progress on those issues since July. His speech on Indigenous relations has been postponed, and he hasn't figured out his environmental platform yet. I mentioned at the top of the show that the House is sitting as of yesterday, and we're definitely going to get way into that next week, but we're also going to have Kelly Leach on next week to wrap up our Conservative chats. That's our show for this week. Make sure to follow us on Twitter and Facebook by typing in Candleland Commons into that search bar. Our producer is Kevin Sexton, and our music is by Nathan Burley with a musical break this week by Tony Clement. Our website is CandlelandShow.com. If you want to get a hold of either Vicky or I, you can email us, Vicky at CandlelandShow.com or Supriya at CandlelandShow.com. The Imposter comes out tomorrow, Shortcuts comes out on Thursday, and we will be back next week. If you like the show, please support us. Go to patreon.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. 
Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.